After that false spring, when the storm blew in covering the state, all the snow melted off and it was summer. It was almost hot by the week after Easter when I found out in Mama's letter that June was gone, not only dead but suddenly buried, vanished off the land like that sudden snow. Far from home, living in a white woman's basement, that letter made me feel buried too. I opened the envelope and read the words. I was sitting at my linoleum table with my textbook spread out to the section on patient abuse. There were two ways you could think of that title. One was obvious to a nursing student, and the other was obvious to a cash paw. Between my mother and myself, the abuse was slow and tedious, requiring long periods of dormancy, living in the blood like hepatitis. When it broke out, it was almost a relief. We knew you probably couldn't get away from your studies for the funeral, said the letter, so we never bothered to call and disturb you. She always used the royal we to multiply the censure of what she said by invisible others. I put down the letter and just stared, the way you do when you are hit by a bad thing you can do nothing about. At first it made me so angry that Mama hadn't called me for the funeral that I couldn't even feel the proper way for Aunt June. Then after a while I saw where I was staring, through the window at the level of the earth, and I thought of her. I thought of June sitting tense in Grandma's kitchen, flicking an ash, jiggling a foot back and forth in a pointed shoe, or smartly cracking her purse to buy each of us children a dairy cone. I thought of her brushing my hair past my waist when it was that long and saying that I had princess hair. Princess hair. I wore it unbraided after she said that, until it tangled so badly that Mama cut precious inches off. Your shelf for my talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for my kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for my your shelf or my Hello. And welcome to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Austin Brigden, Administrative Assistant at the Longview Public Library. Welcome to our July 2020 Our Shelf Challenge podcast, where we'll be talking about the author Louise Erdrich. Yes, yes. First, I think we wanted to, to just say a few words of library news. Um the biggest of which is that we just had our summer reading picnic for the first time in two years. Yeah, so since 2019, and it was really joyful. It was lovely. We had Micah and me come out, who is a kindy band, which is like a portmanteau, is that the word? I have no idea. Of kid and indie band, and they play music and lead kids and dances and that was fun the Shea locomotive was opened by the friends of longview group um jeff wilson and rotary was there giving out books Mm -hmm. there were pirates doing tattoos Tattoos. um the build a better world garden was there there were hot dogs snow cones thank you to the lions Mm -hmm. as always yeah early bird lions came out and i guess it's been all day cooking at the fair and then came and cooked at the library too. Those guys are and gals. Guys are just and gals, amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you see a lion, give them a high five or something because they're just great. Yeah, they're incredible. Um, so I think you know that's our main thing. Looking forward to the fall. There's going to be lots going on. Stay tuned. You know, there's going to be fall programs. You'll be mm-hmm. seeing announcements. So get excited about that. Yeah. So um, we just had done the return of kind of in person programs with this summer with June and a great deal of those have been outdoors um, but we will be resuming some indoor in-person programming in the fall too um, including story time so I'm looking forward to that yeah uh, and same here Northwest Voices Mm -hmm. we'll be we'll be seeing some hopefully seeing some in-person actual authors stepping across the threshold so it's very exciting so just stay tuned there's always something going on the other thing I guess it will be good to mention is that thanks to um, federal funding through the ARPA grant, our library will be getting RFID 
system. Radio frequency identification device is what that stands for. So other libraries you may have used use this. They'd use it down at the Fort Vancouver Regional Libraries. They're like little tags that are placed in all of our books and material, you know, other materials, audiobooks, movies mm-hmm. that are read by an RFID scanner instead of a barcode scanner, which makes checkout faster, easier, yes. and improves our ability to do inventory. Efficiency on the staff mm-hmm. side, magic on the patron side. Yeah. If you've been to one of these larger libraries, I remember the first time I went to Multnomah. And you set all those books on the pad. It's just like magic. Yeah. So I think it's going to be big with the kids. But the, while we're doing that, there'll be disruption. some disruption. Uh, we hope to mitigate that with some good signage and, and staff help. So if you're here and you need help finding something, please don't hesitate to ask. Absolutely. And while we're on the topic, I'll just mention that also thank you to ARPA Funds. Uh, we purchased two tablet stations. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen them, maybe wondered about them out on the floor. The ones on the lower floor are available for checkout now, and the ones uh, probably by the time this podcast comes out, the ones upstairs will be also. That's really going to expand your ability as a patron to spread out through the building and be able to use the internet. You won't be tied to those PCs, so Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's going to be a really great thing. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about Louise Erdrich now. Oh, please. Yes. I have her um, little thing open on Fantastic fiction, her bibliography. Is yeah. that the word I want? Yes, her bibliography. Um, so Louise Erdrich is one of my favorite writers. And I feel like for most of the Our Shelf Challenge, it was authors I picked or authors Austin picked. Yeah. But I feel like this author was real mutual. Mutual. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You definitely read more. Mm-hmm. You had read more, but I was really excited about Louise Erdrich and had wanted to read more. That's one of the wonderful things about doing this on our end is mm-hmm. it really gives us a chance or an excuse, however you want to put it, to to delve in. And uh, I had read one of her novels and was just floored by it, La Rose. It was from 2016, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little background on Louise Erdrich. She is part Chippewa. She's from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa or Ojibwe. Um, and part German-American, and that both of those heritages figure in her fiction. And she's written both novels and poetry and a, just a little smattering of nonfiction. She grew up, what do you say, in the Great Plains, like North Dakota, yes. and now lives in Minneapolis where she also has a bookstore called uh, Birchbark Books. Which is a real... Um, beacon of like native literature. I mean, they just, they, that's their specialty, even though they are a general bookstore as well. They have a real specialization in indigenous literature. And, you know, I've ordered some things. They have mail mm-hmm. order because they, they just have the best, the best selection and the best recommendations. And if you order one of Louise's books from her bookstore, it will become autographed. Yes, yes. Becky and I are going to make it there at some point. It's on our list mm-hmm. for the next few years. Yeah, we have to go to Minneapolis to go to Birchburg Books. And we have to go to Nashville to go to um, Parnassus, Parnassus. which is Ann Patchett's bookstore. Shout out to Ann Patchett. And the book that Becky just enjoyed the heck out of, um, Mm -hmm. her recent collection of essays. It's called These Precious Days. Yes. It was very good. I almost could, I don't know. We've been talking about authors to do for next year. And already I think have too many, but I, I would really like to do Ann Patchett. Yes. So authors so who run bookstores are just the that, they're living the dream, I think. They are living the dream. Um so back to Louise Erdrich. So yes, so she grew up in in North Dakota and is now up in Minneapolis and writes about both of those places and that whole area mm-hmm. in a way that I don't know, people always want to compare people to Faulkner, but there there are other artists that have done this, but like really animated a landscape over a number of books by sort of having the same characters in the same places. Most notably, a number of her books follow a number of families and figures, the Cash Paws, the Nana Pushes, the Lazares, the Morrisseys. Lamartines. The Lamartines. And then, so, so a number of books, and a number of the books that we read, particularly I think myself read for this, are in that sequence you can pick any of them up but they all exist in the same universe and then i don't know she had a trilogy but it's not a trilogy in the sense you usually hear that like you could read any of these books they don't 
but they're they're linked together. I don't even know if they're linked together by characters. They're so thematically linked together. Yeah, they have a kinship, mm-hmm. and that's uh, La Rose, which I mentioned, which is just a devastating story about you know a boy is accidentally shot in a hunting accident by neighbor a neighbor but they're also old friends these two families and the family that the father of which killed the boy offers their child to the other family and she just plays out you know the 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 complexities and the moral tidal waves of this this thing in this small community so la rose the roundhouse which she won the national book award for and uh plague of doves Mm -hmm. i believe um she also one she's on a hot streak so that that trilogy and i think that she refers to as like the justice trilogy are all concerned with justice with crime transgression and transgression and forgiveness that kind of thing and also i think what's really great about reading through the work of an author is how you can see this like same themes come up in their writing over and over in different ways. And I like justice plays out in her latest book, which is called The Sentence, which I'll talk about more later also. And it's true. She is really a good example of somebody who and she has said she has said in various interviews and places that especially at this point in her career, she thinks of all her books, all mm-hmm. her fiction, at least as part of sort of like one great like chapters in one great book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think she is somebody who, although she does novel things, you know, it, uh, particularly in recent years, she's done some real departures for herself, for her. I remember going to another a lecture from another indigenous artist, the poet Natalie Diaz. And she really talked about people particularly coming from an indigenous background, not being afraid of repetition, mm-hmm. of not being afraid of going back to the same things and re-examining them. In this way, she kind of, sort of the, the white culture was more, you got to do something new. You got to make something different. It's got to come from nowhere. You know, you got to just make it a whole cloth. She's like, native culture is not like that. And I, I think you can see that in Erdrich's work. I think you also see the strong Catholic influence. And as someone who grew up Catholic, like you see it in the language, but also, you know, repetition and symbols and things like that are big in Catholic culture. It's a big, it's a real old world religion in a way that as much damage as Catholicism has done to Native communities, there is, you know, some like, I think there's something that can be recognized across in Catholicism, maybe more than other Christianities because it's so mystical and, and symbological. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, there's mysteries. And symbols and rituals Mm -hmm. in a way that. As colonial and and messed up as 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 it is, I think sometimes um, for some communities they see, oh, okay, just, and so Catholicism is very mixed up with the native religions in a lot of her books. I also wanted to add that I don't think we'll be talking very much about them, but she has also written books for children. I had done Birchbark House, which was it's a middle grade kids chapter book with youth here as a book club several years ago and they really liked it that series is there's five books in it now for middle grade readers which she could say is like third or fourth grade through sixth grade Um, and those are historical novels that take place during like westward expansion and they follow a Chippewa girl and it kind of is meant to be like a, a counterpoint or like a native perspective of that period that young people read about a lot when they read like the Little House on the Prairie books, which have been criticized really widely for erasing and villainizing the indigenous people who who lived on the land before the Ingalls did. So they're really, I've only read Birchbark House, but it's really well done. And if you're interested in that period of history, or if you have kids that love the Little House books, they sh- would also really like these ones, too. Yeah, she's done quite a few of those. I had mentioned that she won the National Book Award for The Roundhouse. She's been on kind of a hot streak. She won the Pulitzer for fiction for the book before the sentence, The Night Watchman, um, which I loved so much. 
you know, Becky and I, I didn't always before the podcast, you know, often it was hard, is hard to, we're always reading so many things and reading for different programs to read the same thing. <laughs> Be like, oh, you got to read this. Oh, I don't have time. Um, but we both read The Night Watchmen pretty close together. And such an achingly beautiful book. I think I had read La Rose and I loved it. But then I think when I read The Night Watchmen, I really fell for Louise Erdrich there. That book, it's funny because it's very different than the sentence. It's very typical of an Erdrich novel, I think, in that she moves between all these perspectives. It's very kaleidoscopic. She moves between all these perspectives and sort of draws by doing that she she sort of draws a community she's really good at evoking community and mm -hmm. also community over long periods of time don't you think yes um and so just to talk a little bit about the night watchman it it centers on a figure who's just really based on her grandfather patrick gurno who was a uh, chairman of the turtle mountain band of chippewa in the 50s and into the 60s during a period called termination when the government was you know trying one of many tacks they tried to sort of eliminate native communities yeah the termination was a way they were going to dissolve treaties that they had signed with with uh native people and, and the federal government yeah no um, and it, that would like dissolve reservations yeah basically and it was one of many efforts and you know in others of her books like tracks you you really hear about like the allotment period mm -hmm. which was also really a kind of method to chip away at the reservations but anyway, I digress. Her grandfather was chairman of the Turtle Mountain Band, which was one of the groups that was targeted. She draws this beautiful- This was in the 50s. This was in the 50s. Yeah, he was chairman through the 50s and into the 60s, and he fought it. He fought it, and he was a night watchman at a jewel-bearing plant. And she, she talks about finding this metaphor and just being just totally riveted by this metaphor she, she realized of both as a night watchman, he's trying to stay awake. But that's also what he did for his people as he stayed awake, you know, and he noticed because the government tried to really couch it in a lot of bureaucratic language that probably hoped people wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. And so he fought it. Um, and she, when she was writing the book, got a number of his letters because that was one of the things he would do while he was trying to stay awake on a night shift was he would write letters to her parents. Um, and I watched an interview. It's really, really moving, too, because he was the last Ojibwe speaker in her family. And her daughter now is a teacher in an Ojibwe uh, immersion school. And you can tell she gets, like, choked up in mm -hmm. interviews talking about how if her, her grandfather had nobody to talk to kind of at the end, but if he were alive now, his great-granddaughter could speak to him, which I, I just found so moving. But that book is so, so, so beautiful. And it, it follows her grandfather, but also follows a woman, Pixie, who is a real fierce character who's trying to find out what happened to her sister. Her sister has disappeared in Minneapolis. So into that novel comes the, uh, the, the specter and the, you know, long time issue of, of what happens to indigenous women, particularly as people are pushed into, were pushed into the cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's like a ongoing problem. It's not just a historical. No, yeah. no. I think she's sort of like drawing that it, it's a long, long time problem. But you're seeing a lot of people trying to draw attention mm -hmm. to the fact that this is a, a huge problem and that we would never tolerate this level of violence in a different community if it wasn't indigenous women. I think that's the thing that, that really uh, sticks with you. So La Rose was the first Erdrick book that you read. That's right. Okay. And I don't know why. I just picked it up one day. So the first, I first um, encountered Louise Erdrich when I was in college. Um, and I was taking like a modern American literature course. And modern in the 20th century sense, not meaning contemporary. So Erdrich's book Love Medicine, which was her first novel, was I think the most recent book we read in that class, which was published a year before I was born. And I just loved it. Like her writing is so beautiful. The way that she, so Love Medicine is written almost like interlinked short stories and the way she draws all of these character and narrative threads together 
through these these little stories and through time too so some of the stories take place contemporary to when the book was written so in the mid 80s and others go back into the 20s 20s 30s 40s 50s you know basically all the way up and follows a, some of the characters from flush of youth to old age and even death. Nectar Cashpaw's character through that book is very young in yeah. one section and he is, dies in another one. Yeah. So kind of his lifespan a little bit is, even though I wouldn't say he's like the main, there's no main character. Yeah, she's funny that way. I don't know. I just keep thinking about... I I don't know if you would agree, but she's so good at evoking. There's such a sweep to her books. They're sweeping. She evokes community. Like I said, she evokes like these multi-generational family structures Mm -hmm. and not just family, but community structures, people who are linked together by affairs and betrayals and all of these things over so many years, family feuds, so many different things and time. I don't know. She's just, you can see it in her first book, too. I think, like you said, it's it's almost like linked short stories. I think it's a little bit less straightforward in its movement than some other things she's written. But yeah. you can see the beginning of something that she does again and again, which mm-hmm. she tells stories real slant. She tells them in all these little bits and uh, different. She jumps around in time. And, and she's rewritten Love Medicine or revised it, I think, two times. Yes. Um, She's not afraid to do that, and which I like. Yeah. So if you have like a first edition, that's pretty cool because it's different than the one you get at the store right now. Helpfully, there is a family tree. <laughs> it's very helpful. At the beginning of the book because there's a lot of characters. And like Austin was saying earlier, she and she'd said she said in different interviews, she feels like she's just writing the same book. She spent her whole career writing the same book. And so all of these characters come up. And in certain books, too, it's like a joy and a surprise where, like, you get to a certain point and you're like, I know this character. I know right. this character from a different book. It's like, right. it's like almost like little Easter eggs. <laughs> and sometimes it'll fill it, it fills in something mm-hmm. that you, oh, like, and so you can go back sense. to an oh, earlier book now. Yeah. And read it and get it, something different out of it. It's it's really a it's really a feat, and I I don't there's not a lot of writers who do that mm-hmm. to the way she does. And also this this book I think in particular like as I was rereading it, flipping back and forth between the different sections, I mean like you know to yeah check on who make is sure doing what, yeah, make understanding. Sure. Mm-hmm. No, it's a beautiful beautiful book. Did you have a favorite section? Oh gosh, I that's feel, tough. I feel like I have. I hadn't read this book for a long time. So at least I've read it more than once, but I hadn't read it probably at least for 15 years, I bet. Because I feel like I read it like a few times in the first couple of years after like the first time I read it. And the parts that like when I started, I was like, this is what I remember from the book. I remember the red convertible, um, (laughs) the part where... Their one brother who is a Vietnam vet like goes into the river and yeah. his brother pushes the convertible after him. To, to make it look like an accident. To make it look like an accident. I remembered that and then I really remembered um, the part where Marie Lazare is like a young girl in the co- convent and is oh, being like gosh. tortured by the nun. Yeah, that's very vivid. Is very vivid. And the nun, I think it's also easy mm, because she's like a character in her other books, like a more prominent character than she is in this one, that helped me like remember her as a person in this one too. Right. It's really hard you ask which is, because like you said, it's not a, a book. I mean, obviously there are characters I liked more than others, but um, they're not all likable. Um, <laughs> um, and sometimes not, you think you don't like one and then and you it kind changes. of, it, yeah, it changes. It doesn't, like you said, there isn't really like a prominent protagonist, even though... Like, you kind of think at the beginning, maybe it's going to be Albertine Johnson, but it isn't really. It's, I mean, if, if anything, I think it's most tied together and centered around a generation. And that's these two women, Marie mm-hmm. and Ka- Cashpaw and Lulu Lamartine, and then all Nectar the- and Eli, the two bro- mm-hmm. Cashpaw brothers. And all of their, yeah. 
but like they are okay. the most i think those they are the characters who recur the most through the mm -hmm. whole book it's that generation and you're really tracing the connections between them their backstories and then the connections between them through the whole book that said i love so much of it but i, I really liked the albertine johnson sections and i really liked uh lipsha morrissey who's kind of i don't even know how to explain it he's a he's a guy who he's a guy he's like the book is set into motion by the death of a woman, June Cashpaw, and or that might not have been her, June Morrissey, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, people get married, and I don't know, names change. Anyway, she dies. Lipsha is her son, but not doesn't know it. He's her illegitimate son. And she never raised she him. She didn't raise him. He was raised by Marie. Um, As... Many, most of the children in the community seem to have been. <laughs> yeah. And so he's, there's a kind of a almost biblical contrast thing going on with him and his brother, his half brother, her legitimate or like claimed son, King, who's not a very charming character. Lipsha is kind of a traditionalist, and that comes into the title of medicine. I think some of the things that really just delighted me at the end was Lipsha Morrissey kind of finds out who his father is his father is uh, jerry nanapush who's this like kind of over the top magical realist character he's a he's an american indian movement activist i think very modeled thinking about when this was written very modeled on like leonard peltier he's like somebody who's he's in prison but he always he keeps breaking out you can't hold a chippewa in prison and he shows up at the end and in a, in a way that's so like kind of funny and weird and charming mm -hmm. and then it's like a little bit magical he's kind of a magical figure and i loved i just liked that mm -hmm. a lot yeah he's there and then you turn around and he's gone things are so she's so good at like things being tragic too like capturing the kind of like tragedies of life i was just thinking about jerry nanapush the crazy thing is jerry nanapush is like in prison for some little thing he had like a three-year stint but he kept breaking out so he kept getting it extended and then he ends up going to the Pine Ridge Reservation to hide out, which famously the Pine Ridge Reservation was the site of a bunch of American Indian movement activities and a shootout and things. And so he ends up shooting somebody and killing them, allegedly. And so they end up life in prison. It's like yeah, one but of he won't ever tragic. say if he did it or not. He won't say if he did it or not. But it, the point is, it's like he was in for like three years for something. If he couldn't keep just breaking mm -hmm. out, he'd be out of prison. She's really good at capturing... I don't know, the little tragedies or, you know, kind of like, why are people like they are? So for this, I read. You went on a real streak. <laughs> I tried. I tried. I, I didn't hit my goal, but I, I think. Your goal to read every Louise Urchick <laughs> book? This is the month I think I've been most successful. I read Love Medicine, finally. I read, I went straight in order. I read Beat Queen, mm -hmm. which was her second. More traditionally structured novel, real set historically. Although it's full of the same kind of like reveals and kaleidoscopic sort of narrative. And she sometimes she does crazy stuff. She does crazy stuff in mm -hmm. these books. And you know what? She gets away with it because she can write so well. Yes. I think she gets away with it because her, her writing is really good on a sen sentence level. And because the way that she writes characters. You like, believe it. Yeah. Like no matter what wild stuff that they do no matter how, what, how incredibly unbelievable you might think it is they feel like real people and so you believe it you believe it you believe it yeah so the beat queen is in the same universe and and centered on argus north dakota which is one of the locations that comes up again and again and then i read tracks which was the third book she wrote which is a little different and kind of wild even for her and real like it goes back real far in the history and is more mystical and deals a lot more with, like, I think the old religion. Um, and it's told from two vantage points, one of Nanapush, old Nanapush, which, who's, a, who's a very minor character in Love Medicine, and then a woman named Pauline, who I won't, I won't give away Pauline's, you know, full trajectory. That book, too, I think about the tragedy. That book really takes place during the allotment period, and there's a lot around the real, like, disease plays a large role. So an old Nanapush is, like, one of the guys who survived a real wave of disease as is floor pillager a bunch of these people who are sort of in the wake of that and now they're dealing with allotment and and a real push to like strip them of that old world mm -hmm. and they're kind of holding on i think the book is very much about that 
And there's just so many things in it that are so Do you want to like explain what allotment is? I think a lot of people I don't know go- if I know well. I mean, I kind of know what it is. I don't know if I, I know well to explain it well. It was like a period. It was basically a sort of like a scheme. So like um, – A land the, use scheme, right. basically. So the United States government had signed treaties with Native tribes that gave them – well, that recognized – That sometimes gave them land. <laughs> Gave them land is not a re- the right Right. Phrase. Well, they took the land where they lived and gave them different land to live on instead, that that land would be considered their sovereign mm-hmm. land Territory. run by their Tribal tribe as their own sovereign nation. My understanding is that allotment period tried to take that land that belonged to the tribe yeah. and divide it as like individual private land to yes. different... And forgive us if this isn't, you know, this is yeah. our broad thing. Yes. So the rather than be... the land being held in common, mm-hmm. which was the sort of prevailing attitude of tribes, they would make these allotments. And then they would set up systems by which, you know, you once you had your allotment and you owned it, it could be sold to whites. It could be, you know, there were taxes on mm-hmm. it. You know, people a lot, that happens a lot in tracks. People are losing their allotments to taxes and then they're going up to public auction and being bought up by white farmers. Mm-hmm. And so it does a real erosion. This is at the same time that they're pushing uh, people, as they had been for many years, away from like subsistence gathering, things like that, and wanting them to farm. And then if that isn't successful, you know, they end up losing the land. It was a real like scheme to like slowly or not so slowly, you know, assimilate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And kind of just like disintegrate that tribal sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah. So tracks, I really enjoyed tracks. I read, what else did I read? Maybe those are the three I read new. I'd already read La Rose and The Night Watchman. Mm-hmm. I'd already read The Blue Jays Dance, which is her nonfiction book yeah. about motherhood. You had started, I had also started her, um, so she has two memoiry books, one called The Blue Jays Dance, which you read a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. Love it. Which is about um, herself. And motherhood and it's her it's it's the first year so it's crazy it's the first year after she's had a baby um, her first baby and but it's like one of those books where it's like yes it's about motherhood it has like a subtitle but it's about a ton of stuff mm-hmm. all kinds of things and i would say it feels i mean they're both it feels more like memoir than her second one which is books and islands in ojibwe country yes yeah, which so- is a little more like travelogue mm-hmm. and maybe I, a little more like acad- not academic but like oh i don't know it's it's a, like cultural history a lot of mm-hmm. cultural history and then travel yeah i started that one and then i was like i just want to read a novel instead so i put it down and then you started it and kind of and it's a small book um and i'll go back to it too but it's interesting i haven't read blue jay's dance but that one was about the I think it's subtitled like a birth year mm-hmm. her first child and books and islands in Ojibwe country is after her last child which was almost 20 years later yeah um, she had her last child in her late 40s 48 I think and so she's taken the little baby with her everywhere she's kind of doing this travel log where she's going to different places and that book really talks about like the importance of language which i think is really you know like a thematic thread in all of her books yes. and also something like the ojibwe people worked really hard to save their language and that's why her yeah daughter or granddaughter knows, her daughter her daughter knows the language now um, yeah. is because of the work of these people well, too. And, and these islands that she's referring mm-hmm. to so there's all these lakes and all these islands in that region in ojibwe country and there's like pictographs, and so she's she's drawing com- lines between these these islands as books, mm-hmm. and, and talking about everything in between. You know, I was really excited at one point. She talks about oh, I can't remember what they're Dent. called. Dent. Uh, it, uh, so it's an it's a medium. It's a very early medium the Ojibwe used with birch bark, and they would make these intricate designs with their teeth. And Portland Art Museum has one, and they're incredible. But so it's a good book. I don't want to mm-hmm. give the sense that it was like. I was running out of time, so I pivoted and got <laughs> wanted to get a little taste of this other book. But like, and it's a little slower going, I think, because you're learning so much about Ojibwe culture. It's a great book to read if you're wanting to learn about their language and their culture. 
Um, but then I pivoted because mm-hmm. I really wanted to see what the deal was with um, the last report on the miracles on the miracles at Little No Horse. And I'm enjoying it. Um, this just in: Louise Erdrich is a good writer, so <laughs> everything I read, I I'm happy about. Mm-hmm. But I think too, like I was like I'd read Love Medicine in college, and then I'd read like a lot of her other books in the years after that and one of the things that's great about her books is not only are they amazing but they're also like really available like they are. you can find them at garage sales there's always copies of her books like on the friends two dollar bookshelf a lot of them have been bestsellers and then you've also mentioned that a lot of them were like book club books and mm-hmm. so there's just a lot of yeah they print a lot of copies of them. <laughs> the world is awash in copies yeah. of louise erdrick books and I like it. Mm-hmm. So I read Love Medicine. I I read The Beat Queen too, but it's been a long time since I read that one. Tracks I have read. Um, I just got a copy of Crown of Columbus at Powell's the other day, which she co-wrote with her husband, uh, Michael Doris, who died in 97? 97. And I've read his novel, Yellow Raft and Blue Water, but not anything that they both put their names on. They had a really interesting, like, literary relationship they met when he was a teacher and she was a student and fell in love and he had three adopted children I read that he was the first single man in the United States to be able to adopt a child he was which is interesting and then they got married and had more kids and then his life ended very tragically yeah he's an interesting figure some of his uh, it's it's striking to me now how much he seemed to fade have faded mm-hmm. from the map of native literature and literature because he was a real star mm-hmm. at one time and he now, was a bigger star than her. Sure, and then they were sort of stars together. They were a real power couple, and people and then and they and then they played into this too. They had a real collaborative process, but like, there's a certain period where it's like they're always interviewed together. <laughs> they talked always... about how they'd write their books together. Right. It was always Michael Doris and Louise Erdrich. Mm-hmm. But on his own, he had, you know, some real big books. Um, also, The Severed Cord. Is that yes. what it's called? A book about fetal alcohol, a memoir about fetal mm-hmm. alcohol syndrome. And yeah, he's really faded out. And, and you know, he had a tragic and also a very controversial mm-hmm. end to his life. And so I don't know that, that people will ever really know the total truth about his, him or, mm-hmm. but... Uh, uh, yeah, so The Crown of Columbus. Um, yeah, so that's, they talk about how they co-wrote a lot of their books just as part of their process, but this is one that's like, has both of their names on the cover. That's the only one. Yes, so I just got a copy, I haven't read that one. I've read The Bingo Palace, you'll like that one, Lipshaw's like the main character, or a main character of that one. Tales of Burning Love, I remember reading like, Camping, and in the summer and it was really hot but tales of burning love is like a winter book <laughs> and it's very like imprinted in my memory this reading this book over this week and i was camping but it's about four or maybe five women who are stuck in a car together during like a a blizzard and they're all involved with the same man and kind of take turns telling each other their love stories with him. And it's really good. So I'd read that one. And then, I don't know, I went to grad school. And I guess I stopped reading books. Because, like, the next few of, like, I still haven't read Antelope Wife or The Last Report on the Miracles at Little No Horse. Antelope Wife, by the way, is another interesting example of her mm-hmm. not being afraid to revise. So now she wrote Antelope Wife. That was the first book she published after Doris's death. And now she's republished it as Antelope Woman. She totally revised it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read either of those ones. Or Matcher Butcher Singing Club or Four Souls or The Painted Drum. So there's like a chunk right in the middle that I haven't read of hers. Or the poetry? I haven't read her poetry either. But then um, I read Plague of Doves right when that came out. And I was in library school. So I don't know what I was not. Maybe these were not in paperback at garage sales. And that's why I didn't read them. And I love Plague of Doves. Like that, one of the main storylines in that one is about like a girl who goes to college and she's the first person in her family to go to college. And 
about being like a first generation student that really like spoke to me in particular at the time. And I'd wanted to reread that one for this, but I didn't get to it. And then Shadow Tag, I think I read, but I don't remember. Maybe I haven't. Roundhouse, of course. That one I think was, is maybe been her biggest, biggest novel. Little Rose. Future Home of the Living God, which felt really different. It's like dystopic. And that's also, it's about a, a woman who is pregnant. And if I'm remembering correctly, like this, the, the storyline is like most people on the world have become like infertile Mm -hmm. except for i think some native Native people and so she is is having to like hide hide in her house hide her pregnancy because she believes that her baby will be stolen from her Mm -hmm. which Which feels echoes yes echoes the history at the same time as being like a kind of a futuristic dystopic yeah, book is yeah. really good. That was one of the departures we mentioned. Yes. Felt because like a real departure. Most She's of her, done a lot of historical. Most of her books are historical or a, like a blend of historical and contemporary. And, contemporary. and then contemporary-ish. Yeah. And then The Night Watchman, which Austin talked about. Yeah, which is a real, real in line with a lot of her books mm-hmm. in that sort of style and and it's a historical you know narrative just beautiful though Mm -hmm. and very personal i think Mm -hmm. very personal um and then i think that brings us to a book that you're going to talk about another departure yeah i was saying this book felt to me really different because because it feels like the only real contemporary book that she's written it's just and it's also like it's her pandemic novel. So it takes place 2019 to 2020 over a year. It's like fall 2019 to um, fall 2020. And it's very grounded in the things that happened that year. It takes place in Minneapolis um, where George Floyd was murdered. And that is a big part of the story. And it takes place, like I said earlier, in Louise Erdrich's world. So the main character's name is Tookie, and she is a woman, I believe, like in her late 40s, who works at Birchbark Books. The bookstore is never named, but it's obvious what it is. It is owned by a writer whose name is Louise, who is on tour for her book um, about her grandfather, and they even name him. They don't name the book, but they name her grandfather, um, which is the Night Watchman, as things are shutting down in like March of 2020, Louise is like sending reports from the road, like about how strange it was at that time. And I think it's in one of those sections um, where she says, it feels like I'd read it out loud to you. Like looking around in present time felt like looking at old photographs. Oh, yeah. She's, like, at a dinner. Yeah. And a bunch of people are, like, laughing and enjoying themselves in this, like, patio. And she's looking around, and she, it's almost like she has a, you know, presentiment of that it's going to be gone. Yeah. And it's, I guess, another thing. There's, like, a couple tiny little sections that are from, like, the perspective of her daughter or her husband. But almost the entire book is in first person mm-hmm. from Tookie's perspective, which is also very, very different than her other books, which... I think or I don't want to say they're all because I haven't read she them. I have some things or some <laughs> sections in yeah. first. So it's very but mostly third person. Yeah, um, very much in Tookie's like narrative voice and in her own experience. And it was just so delightful to read. Definitely like read it a lot faster than I had re- when I reread Love Medicine. And it starts with like kind of some background on her and how she'd come to work at the bookstore she talks about how in her 30s she was still like living as though she was a teenager or like someone in her early 20s as far as like partying and having terrible friends and she was with this woman that she had a crush on when she had got this phone call that like the man that she was in love with the friend had died with his girlfriend of like an overdose and she convinces Tookie to take like a refrigerated truck from a place that she had just worked at and go and get him and bring him to her because she thinks that they belong together 
And Tookie's like, not make great choices. But even then, she's like, I don't know. This is like, I don't know. I, this I don't, is too much. I don't really want to do it. And she's like, well, if you do it, you can have my like bingo winnings. You just won like $20,000. And she's like, okay, I'll do it. I'll run I'll just, just quick favor for you. And so she goes and borrows the truck. I.e. like steals it. Um, goes to this other woman's house where she's like doesn't know what to do with the body. She basically just like puts him in the truck and takes him over to her friend's house takes the money and walks away and ends up getting arrested almost immediately and sentenced to 60 years in prison because because the two women kind of like lied about what had happened and also the one that he had died with had taped like crack cocaine into his armpits and so she and she transferred him from like minnesota to wisconsin because they were right on the border so she was charged with like drug trafficking Trafficking across state lines and yeah sentenced 60 years in prison and she talks about how she had this tribal attorney she didn't have a lot of faith in until she got commute is that commuted i don't know because i didn't read the book like they vacated her sentence or they did something to commuted it or commuted it i think is the word to serve the whole no and also it like he so she didn't have much faith in this tribal attorney, but it turned out he kept working on her case even after she was sentenced and was spending time in prison. So she's, how much did she, she serve? So she served ten years, but the, her sentence was commuted in that she wasn't like a felon anymore because he had gotten um, confessions from the two women who served like tiny little, you know, jail time confessions that like they lied about what she'd done, um, lied about her trafficking the drugs and having it be like one of this women the friend yeah yeah they were both terrible great friend um Um, anyways so she comes out of prison 10 years later and gets married and works at the bookstore so by the time this book happens she might be maybe in her 50s it's kind of unclear but while she was in prison the one person who really like kept in contact with her was this woman who had been her teacher and she'd sent her she'd sent her like a new book every month and she, the first book she sent her was a dictionary and that plays into like the whole rest of the book um, her name was Jackie her teacher also is the one who got her the job at the bookstore do you want to talk about the haunting aspect? yeah so it's there's so much going on so she is working at the bookstore she has this like real relationship with like books in that they kept her going for like 10 years she was incarcerated for something she didn't do and also has like a really rich knowledge that contributes to her work there is a regular customer of theirs who dies at the beginning of the book and starts haunting the bookstore and Tookie in particular we should say that this is maybe a bit further than, than sometimes Louise Erdrich does, but sh- there's often an element of magic realism mm-hmm. in her books. Yeah. Um, and then when they were talking about this book, so I'm looking forward to it, but like I know a lot of reviewers were talking about loving how she reversed the trope of like sort of Indians haunting what, you know, yeah. like the Indian burial ground trope. Mm-hmm. You've instead got a white woman. Uh, yeah, so it was a woman who's a really regular customer who is a little bit of like a she I don't know that there's there's probably a slang term for it, but like a person who like is a little bit chases the the native experience and wishes she was native. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if there is a slang term, but she she says it's difficult to be so annoyed with this woman because while she also like like romanticizes like and appropriates in, in, inappropriates like indigenous people she also does a lot of good for them right. like she uh, you know adopted and raised a, a daughter um she's given money for like causes and helped women in particular but still like <laughs> still a problem still a problem but yeah so there's that reversal of that old trope mm-hmm. Haunting. I, we watched an interview with yeah. PBS NewsHour, and haunting is working on a couple different levels. Like one of the things I, uh, Louis Erdrich talked about that I loved is she said, you know, the book is this magical thing, mm-hmm. continues to be this magical thing where you sit down and engage with this object, mm-hmm. and it brings up thoughts and emotions. She says it haunts you. 
Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And then she also talked about how George Floyd and the violence and the everything that was going on haunted the city of Minneapolis. So it's mm-hmm. it's on a bunch of levels. Yeah, and how everything that had happened, that she talks about all of the lion, lines and the city, red line, yellow line, blue lines, like all comes up to haunt them. And yeah. um, another thing that she says in there's like a really nice author's note at the end is how she feels like the life of an author haunts the books that they write. Whoa. Which yeah. I really liked that too. I sort of feel like too, you know, maybe it's it's in a more forward way in this book. But that haunting is not new to Louise Erdrich's book. No. To work. I think that, Mm-mm. you know, a, th- a thing that runs through a lot of her work is the way, and haunting is read as a negative thing, mm-hmm. right? That was another thing they talked about and she talked about in interviews, that haunting is thought of as this negative thing in white culture, mm-hmm. but not necess- in native culture necessarily. You can be haunted in a positive way. And a lot of her characters are haunted in positive and negative ways and they're also haunted by the past they're haunted by in the, by intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. you know uh, haunting is a, is a theme i'm gonna do a hot take here so like she her whole career's pretty much been a hot streak right but and she's got that national book award she's got that uh pulitzer she's got Press. that pulitzer and she's probably got some other stuff nobel prize for literature i'm gonna go on the record right now and i'm gonna say I think Louise Erdrich should get the Nobel. Looking at this body of work, I think sure. she should get the Nobel Prize for Literature. I don't know if she would be the first indigenous person to receive that award from I, the from America. Know. I don't know that. I suspect. What, can't you imagine that? Yeah. So. For sure. Watch this space for the next <laughs> twenty five years or whatever. Uh, um. Yeah, she's so she's so smart, and like, there's so much stuff that works on different levels. So the book is called The Sentence. And, of course, there's, like, the 60-year sentence that she is sentenced with. There's, like, the idea of sentence as, like, a punishment or a period of time or incarceration that comes up again when everything shut down in, like, March of, of 2020 where they're, like, sentenced to be, at, you know, at home and isolated and also sentenced as, like, words as you should read that epigraph do you want to read that epigraph sure. real quick the epigraph of the book is from sun young's shins unbearable splendor and it's from the time of birth to the time of death every word you utter is part of one long sentence wow you know i wonder if this might be a good time becky if you want to read us a couple of passages from the sentence as we as we wind down our conversation sure also to say about the idea of the sentence too there are particular sentences in the book that have really powerful um like narrative importance like she she comes to believe that the, the ghost flora who's haunting her and haunting the bookstore died because of a sentence that she read in a particular book and towards the end spoiler alert kind of they attempt to get her to leave the store by using what they call the most beautiful sentence and she also has this practice of using her dictionary as kind of like a way to pray or like decide things like a religious text or a, <laughs> or almost like a what is that the i change like, like a magic eight ball like even the I, the, you know the is not the i change you know that thing where the, you throw the sticks and like that it's an asian tradition no uh, and, and it kind of you can use it to make predictions yeah i ching i'm not sure i'm not sure about that oops but she'll you know like think of a question and then flip her dictionary and put her hand on a on a word or a sentence um, that's going to help her understand or, or, or guide something. Anyway, so that the idea of what a sentence comes up a lot too, and I just thought it was so clever, but also very beautiful. So I'll read the, the just the opening paragraph of the book, and then there's this other section that I like where she's talking about books. And so it starts, while in prison, I received a dictionary. It was sent to me with a note. This is the book I would take to a deserted island. Other books were to arrive from my teacher. 
But as she had known, this one proved of endless use. The first word I looked up was the word sentence. I had received an impossible sentence of 60 years from the lips of a judge who believed in an afterlife. So the word with its yawning C, belligerent little E's, with its hissing syllabants and double N's, this repetitive bummer of a word made of slyly stabbing letters that surrounded an isolate human T, this word was in my thoughts every moment of every day. Without a doubt, had the dictionary not arrived, this slight word that lay so heavily upon me would have crushed me or what was left of me after the strangeness of what I'd done. And then later in the bookstore, and she's talking about working in the store alone, the state of Minnesota had declared bookstores essential. And so they were able to work at the store through their state shutdown, providing, you know, curbside pickups and mail orders. But they had decided to only have like one person working at the store at a time, which becomes a problem for Tuki because she's um, more haunted by the ghost when she's there on her own. She says, this is from page 164. Alone, I had to get out of my surroundings the way I used to in prison. There, I had learned to read with a force that resembled insanity. Once free, I found that I could not read just any book. It had gotten so I could see through books, the little ruses, the hooks, the setup in the beginning, the looming weight of a tragic ending, the way at the last page the author could whisk at the carpet of sorrow and restore a favorite character. I needed the writing to have a certain mineral density. It had to feel naturally meant, but not cynically contrived. I grew to dislike manipulations. For instance, besides the repetitive language, my problem with my now beloved Elena Ferrante was her use of the winking cliffhanger. Sometimes I want to weep when I detect both talent and abused talent in a writer. The life of the writer cannot help but haunt the narrative. Because of the force of the gift, I went along with certain novels. Tender is the night, or the work of Jean Rees. Talent abuse sometimes beams off the page with generous humility. Now I want to read books that make me forget the elegant cellular precision of a baby versus the entropic flow of human flesh toward the disorder of death. I want to read books that make me forget the $1.43 breakdown of our component parts. Wow. And throughout the book, she talks about but she has this uh, customer who she calls dissatisfaction because she can never <laughs> satisfy you know his his particular taste I guess but as she's helping him pick like pandemic reads the relationship changes and also it sounds like he becomes more satisfied with books and so she has to call him by his real name but they start like this little list of what they call perfect little novels and I was like reading this I'm like I have to go back and like write down every book she mentions as being like good something she recommends and there's so many or she refers to but then I (laughs) happily got to the end of the book and it's there's it says totally biased list of Tookie's favorite books and it is one two three four five (laughs) six seven pages long So now I just have to read them all. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how much of these I've read. I think not as many as I'd like. You've got a reading list to work off of. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I was just remembering, because you were talking about Tuki and her practice of using the dictionary as a oracle or religious text almost, um, is uh, in... um, Books and Islands in Ojibwe Country. Louise Erdrich talks about the practice of tobacco, using tobacco. Uh-huh. Not for smoke. She doesn't smoke. She talks about that. She doesn't smoke anymore. There's so many good moments in that book. But she talks about the, the practice of giving offerings of tobacco, which she's very into. And mm-hmm. even the little baby gives mm-hmm. offerings of tobacco. She's like, she does it with such... Uh, natural. Such zeal that if they don't take the bag away, she will give all the tobacco. But she talks about like never having been sure if she believes... Mm-hmm. it or like in a literal sense or like does it even matter and the more she's gone on it sounds like the more she sort of values the practice where like it does itself it... and she doesn't matter like she cares less and less whether she believes it mm-hmm. and knows just like in her bones that it's what she needs to do mm-hmm. and i just thought that was so cool you know and and you see that through her books it's like people are using different kinds of practices some of them are 
indigenous. Some of them are Catholic. Some mm -hmm. of them are wholly made up by the person to get through, you know, to get through the day. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And then, so in this copy, this copy of Love Medicine that we have, which is the revised edition from 20, 2009. Yeah. There's like a bunch of back matter in it. And one of them is, it says it's a discussion with Louise Erdrich, but it's really like, questions and terse replies she's not always that terse <laughs> no it made me laugh though and one of the questions well here's a funny one it's she this says what single thing would improve the quality of your life and her answer was not doing publicity <laughs> and another question is what would be your deserted island luxury and she says a dictionary but that's more a necessity which obviously that comes up in the sentence is like one of the very first sentences of the book. And then in her author's note, this is so interesting to me or into the acknowledgments section. She says in 1971, I entered a contest sponsored by the national football league. The author of the winning essay on the topic, why I want to go to college would receive a scholarship for several thousand dollars. 100 runners up would receive a dictionary. I was a runner up. My dictionary, the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, 1969, came with a gold-stamped letter from the president of the NFL, J. Robert Carey, thanking me for my interest in professional football. As it turned out, my true interest was in professional writing. Although I didn't know at the time how important words would become for me, I carried this heavy cloth-bound dictionary to college, to a summer of work at the Blacksmith House Coffee Shop in Boston, back to North Dakota, where I was a poet in the North Dakota State Penitentiary and in schools throughout the state. The dictionary turned with me to the East Coast, where I worked at the Boston Indian Council. It stayed with me through marriage, where I was was there when I brought my daughters home as newborns, became a comfort to me through difficult times, collected newspaper clippings, pressed flowers, pictures of William Faulkner, Octavia Butler, and Jean Rees, bookmarks from vanished bookstores, and other mementos within these pages. It was the dictionary I consulted for this book. Wow. Yeah. I think I just have to end with like, she's good. She's good. And there's so much more I could say about the sentence. I'll say one more thing. It's like another thing I really loved about the book. And I think a thing that make it feel very contemporary besides the 2020 setting, which like I was reading it last night and... I feel like it's not been, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but so much has happened and changed and people's attitudes are so different. Like it feels a long time ago when like you were watching the news and seeing, you know, the death toll and remembering like the really palpable fear of that yeah. time. And it just like took me right back there. Yeah, um, that period when things were shutting down. Well, when and you're just, like, what's going to shut down next? And when people were really afraid to. Yeah. Her her husband, Tookie's husband, gets COVID, and he is in the hospital for a number of weeks, and she doesn't know if he'll survive. She starts, and it's like late fall in Minnesota, and she's like sleeping in her car in the parking lot of the hospital because she feels like. She has to be as close to him as possible, even though it's, like, freezing outside. Anyways, it's just, like, really moving. But her relationships with these younger people in the book, too, is something that's really touching. And I think probably comes from, like, Louise's real relationships with the young women in particular who work at her bookstore and her daughters, who've also, I think, all worked at the bookstore. But there's the Tookies, they call her daughter. It's her husband's niece who she says they inherited as a daughter who's in her early 20s and arrives and on winter solstice in 2019 with like surprise this is my baby and that really changes and improves the relationship between her and Tookie and then the different young people at the bookstore and their interest and passion for revitalizing their language and culture their um, passion for like social justice She's, like, taking care of the baby while the daughter is out, like, marching. Their, like, understanding, I think, of their own haunted history is such a beautiful part in the book. And when it comes to the ghost towards the end, it's these young women that Tookie learns from to kind of solve that 
the ghost story that's in the book. So wow, it's just really beautiful. I loved it. I'm looking forward to it. It's also funny. Like she's funny. She's funny. That's. A, I mean, we talked about tragedy and sweep and all this stuff. She's really funny. Yeah. So I think as much as I don't want to be done with Louise Erdrich, mm-hmm. I would. I we need to move on to the next author. But I think I'll be sneaking in some Erdrich on the side for a while. Um, and I could talk about her all day. Um, but uh, I think we're we're, we're wrapping up here. I'll say that next month our author is Susan Orlean. Mm. I don't know if um, if people at home how familiar they are. The book you probably would know her from is probably The Orchid Thief. Really? Well, that was a pretty I famous think, book when I it came think out. People would know her from the library book. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe that Maybe. was only big to me. Well, Reese Reese Witherspoon picked, picked library book for her book club. Okay. Well, library book I Previous to that, I think her biggest thing, not you know, was was probably the Orchid Thief, um, which I think was was huge, and then was made into like a movie, which I've heard wasn't very good. But yeah, she's written a lot for the New Yorker. She's written. She's. I'm excited to talk about her. She wrote the Orchid Thief. She wrote a book about Rin Tin Tin. She wrote the library book. Um, the Bullfighter checks her makeup. She's a one of the New Yorkers consummate profile writers in a in a magazine that's been known for consummate profile writers and reporters so um i'm very excited Mm -hmm. she also has a newer book out that i think is a collection i don't know if it's a a new book or if it's like sort of a collection of her work on animals but it's called on animals so i i think it's new yeah she's into animals yeah. She's written a lot about like chickens and stuff. So. And I think it's like about like our human relationship with animals, both as like other creatures that we love and also ones we like eat and maybe like don't treat very well. Right. So looking forward to that. Uh, we're getting toward the end of the year. I hope y'all, I know a lot of you all are, are participating in our Beanstack Challenge. It's really gratifying to see that, see that you guys are all reading along. So we're getting toward the end of the year. September, we're going to be reading Toni Morrison. Very appropriate, given how much her books have been banned. September is the home month of Banned Books Week. Uh, November, we're going to be reading Ursula K. Le Guin, a Portland writer. We're, we're going to be joined by special guest James Newkirk. If you spend any time in the library, you know James. Uh, November, we're going to be reading the delightful Nora Ephron and watching all her movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, in December, we're going to be reading Craig Johnson, who is close to my own heart. I think, you know, for how much that Wyoming sheriff trudges through snow, it's an appropriate time of year to read about him. And that'll close out our year. That'll close out our year. But we are busy dreaming up who we're going to talk about for the 2023 challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're also going to have a prize drawing at the end of this for all of you participants. Uh, so thanks for hanging with us. Becky? Thanks for listening to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Austin. Bye. Bye-bye now. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.